If you would pray with me and then we're going to look at those passages together. But let's pray first. Lord, we thank you uh, for the opportunity to open your word together. Uh, We thank you that you have spoken clearly to us, uh, that you show us who we are and what that means for us. And so as we open your word and spend time in it, we pray that you would lead and guide us in all truth. That the Holy Spirit would take the eternal truths of your word and apply them to our hearts and our minds. That you would uh, illuminate our hearts and our minds to show us uh, what is true of us in you and what that means for us. Uh, We confess we cannot do any of that without you. And so we pray that you would be moving in this place uh, to do that work. Uh, We thank you for this opportunity to be together, to spend time in your word together. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I don't know how many of you are aware of, uh, or have seen 23andMe or uh, Ancestry DNA, if you've ever heard of these. Uh, I just got kind of introduced to this recently, but what it is, is you can take a DNA test at your house. Uh, you can actually go online, go to one of those websites, fill out a thing, and they will send you a kit. Uh, you do like the swab in your mouth, and you put it back in, and you send it off, and like a month later, you get uh, a full kind of workup of your DNA and where you came from and who your ancestors are. Uh, depending on which company you use, they'll actually tell you things about just uh, your genetic history and some of the things that are there. Uh, My wife, Joanna, her sister did it recently and got it back and was sharing with Joanna some of those things and some of their background and where they came from and ancestors. Uh, One of the things we were kind of laughing about, uh, Joanna hates, like hates cilantro. Uh, Maybe you like cilantro, maybe you don't, but about 50% of the population, it's a genetic thing. Cilantro tastes like soap. And so you may like it, but the people who don't like it really don't like it. And Joanna doesn't like it. And it actually said on that thing, your family is likely to not like cilantro. Like it said that in her DNA profile, like it tells you these things, like which is kind of amazing that you're like, how do they know that from? And so it's, it's crazy that you can fill that thing off, send it back and you get these things and you're like, wow. And so uh, but the truth is like our, our genetics and our, our DNA and our family and who our parents are and who our grandparents are and our great grandparents. It plays a big role into who we are and the way we see ourselves and the way that we come to that. And so thinking about that, it's kind of unique that we have uh, the technology at this point that we live at this time we live in that you can know all this stuff and and, and come in contact with it. But I start there and I mention that just because it really does play a big part of understanding who we are who our family is and the way we look at that and the way that we see that. And so we're we're in the middle of a series where we've been talking about who we are. And when we say who we are, I mean it kind of in two ways, the church in general, who we are as Christians in Jesus Christ and what that means for us. But then how do we see that played out, who we are in our local body and the ways that we see, seek to embody those things that are true of us in Jesus? And so we talked about um, the very first week that we're gospel centered. We want all things that we do and say and the way we operate to center around the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. And then last week we talked about being disciples, growing in obedience to Jesus in every area of our life. The Bible uses that term quite a bit for Jesus's followers to be disciples. But today we're going to talk about this idea of being a family or a family of faith. And it's an image that's woven all the way through Scripture and we see it quite a bit. And so when we start to talk about it, though, we can often think of it when we say, well, we're a family of faith and we mean it kind of metaphorically or it's this neat image or it's this thing. And we mean it kind of uh, in a spiritual way. But I want us to think today that it's way more than just that. Uh, Very literally, God is our father. Uh, The Bible talks about how Jesus, who comes and takes on humanity and steps in and lives and experiences everything that we live, that Jesus is our brother. 
It says that in Hebrews and it talks about Jesus being our brother and God being our father and us being in God's family. And when we begin to kind of plumb the depths of what that means, that God is our father and Jesus is our brother and what it means that we are now part of God's family together. There's a wonderful encouragement when we start to see that. And there's a great uh, just fuller understanding of who we are and the way that we're called to love one another when we start to get the full picture of what that looks like. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. And the way uh, I want to go out this is I'm going to start with just kind of a theological background of this idea of family that we see in the Bible. And there's kind of a lot to that. There's some some background that we need to have and understand. But then secondly, I want us to think about when we begin to embrace what the Bible tells us about who we are as God's family, it can greatly change the way we see and engage with the world. And then lastly, I want us just to think about some practical steps to begin to live that together, to live that more fully together. And so let's just start with this big idea, theological background of family. And I want to start with one verse in Ephesians. You can turn there if you want to, but you don't have to. Ephesians chapter three is Paul's praying for the church at Ephesus. And he, and he kind of launches into this big prayer. But I want to start with just one verse that he says in Ephesians chapter three and verse. Actually, it's two verses, 14 and 15. And he says this, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And then he goes on to pray that we'd be strengthened in our spirit and understand who God is and live into the fullness of that. But what I want you to focus on for just a second is what Paul says there at the beginning is that he bows to our father and bowing to God, the father for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That every person that's walking on the planet was created in God's image and we owe our being and who we are back to our father, God. And he says that, that every family on earth. And I want you to think about that for just a second, that God creates all, that all of us who are made in his image, that we owe uh, who we are back to him, the father of all things. And, and I want you to think about that in a very literal way for just a second. That if you were to go back and we look at the account in Genesis 1 and 2 and we're introduced to the first people and we see Adam and Eve and these people and you could sit down and talk to Adam and Eve and talk to them and you say, who is your father? They would turn and they would they would point to God and they would say, this is our father. He's the one that created us. This is all we've ever known. This is who is there in a very real sense. They would say God is our father in the most literal sense. There'd be no one else that they would point to, but they would see that. And I want us to think about that. I know that's a really obvious point. It's really simple and straightforward, but sometimes we don't think about how all comes back to God as people. Uh, we could trace our family tree back and very literally what we see. And we're talking about, I was talking about the DNA and genetics and the way we see those things. And if you struggle with that idea of, of Adam and Eve being the first man and woman and taking the, the Genesis 1 and 2 account literally, if you struggle with that sometimes, what you can say, though, whether you believe that or not, is we can look at all the genetics and what we know and what they've, they've come to is that we can trace all of us back to a common ancestor. All of us. That we all come back and start at the same place. And if we follow our family tree back far enough, it all comes together to one place. And what the Bible tells us is it started with God creating people in his image. And so very literally, in the most uh, literal sense, God is our father and we can come back to that. 
Uh, I was talking about the ancestry DNA. Uh, a couple of years ago, Asher and I, my oldest son, Asher and I, were spending some time looking at that ancestry.com. Uh, if you've ever gone on that, you can trace your family tree back. And I found it fascinating. We got into it. We, we did the, the free trial for like a month and kind of played around with it. And we spent a few hours on there tracing back these things. And, and to my kind of amazement, I had no idea you could do this. In just a few hours, we had traced my family roots back to 1100 A.D. Isn't that crazy? Like you could find records and all these things. And I have relatives that came from Scotland and Wales. And you could trace these things back. And all of a sudden, it was like it made the world seem like a much smaller place. Suddenly, these people that live on the other side of the world are my descendants that we came from. And we very literally are connected that they're part of my family. I thought that was a really cool thing. It, it reminded me uh, being together with my family when I was like uh, in high school and we'd all be together with my cousins and we'd all get together and be like 20 or 30 of us together. And my grandfather would be there. My grandfather, Theodore Stort Moffat Jr. And he'd say it just like that. Right. He'd tell you all the time. Right. But we'd all sit in the room and he'd look around at us and he'd kind of point his finger and he'd go, all of you wouldn't be here if it wasn't for me. And he'd look at every one of us. You wouldn't be here and you wouldn't be here. And you go, you're right. Right. He's very literal, but true. Right. And even just in a few generations in your own family, you start to see the connection you have with all these people. But if we start to go back further and further and we get to that, what we see is that we're all made in God's image and that he is our father. And so the most broadest sense When Paul says here, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I want you just to think about that for a second. I want you to think about in light of the way our world is going and the deep, dark struggles we're having in different ways. What that truth, if we would truly embrace that, how that would change the way a lot of things are going in our world today. You understand that theologically and what we believe as Christians and what we hold to in the Bible, that whenever anyone looks down on someone else because of their country of origin of the color of their skin or their facial features or the language they speak, that that is a lie from the pit of hell. God is the father of all of us. We are created in his image. We owe all of it back to him. And so when we hear those things, boasting of superiority because of where you were born or the color of your skin or the language you speak, that we as Christians should speak up boldly that all people are made in God's image. And so I want us to start there as we come back to that, because that is so very important. That's foundational of what we believe. But then there's another step that we need to understand when we start to talk about family and the images that are used in the Bible All people are made in God's image, but yet we're going to read in just a second about in Galatians about how we're adopted into God's family and we're adopted back in. And you can wrestle with if we're all God's children, why do we need to be adopted into his family? And the answer is when we read through the Bible is although we are all made in God's image, we he is the father of all. We can all trace back to him. Every single one of us has rebelled against him. Every single one of us has sinned and turned our back. Every single one of us, if we're to push that image, has declared emancipation from our father. We don't need you. I can do this without you. 
Just like a, a kid grows up and we get to a place of thinking, I know more than my parents and I don't need you. So we have done with God, every one of us. Emancipation, if you know what that is, is where a child can go when they get to be 16, 17, around 18 and say, I want emancipation from my parents and I don't want to have anything to do with them. It's usually a sad situation where that ever happens. The home situation had to be so bad for it to get to that. But essentially, that's what we do with God. Sin is ignoring God and the world he created. And we decide to ignore him and throw him off and say, I don't need you. I can do this on my own. And we've all done that. That's what sin is. And because of that, the Bible talks about us moving from children of God to children of wrath. Now, as I say that, that can be easily misunderstood it can immediately uh, kind of in our culture be taken as like, well, we do things bad and now God's really mad at us. It, and people will take that as kind of like uh, God's petty and why does he get so angry and that kind of things. But I, we need to understand really what that means. And when we talk about God being a God of wrath. It's born out of his love for his children. And I want you to think about why God is angry at all sin. His holy, righteous character cannot be in concert with sin. He's against those things. He's against all things that are detrimental to his children. He has to be because he is perfect in every way. God's character demands that is the case. And so when we begin to talk about this idea of all people being God's children, that is true in a very real sense. We all owe back to God. But that in our rebellion, we become children of wrath. And it's because God is a perfect, loving father. If he wasn't angry at the things that are detrimental to us, he would just be apathetic. And that is the opposite of love. It is born out of his love that he cares. And so we become children of wrath in our rebellion. And so sometimes within the church, we can try to downplay that. Does it sound good? Or we get in this thing that I'm going to defend God and make him sound better than he is, which is absurd. We can't do that. But we sometimes try to take that role and I'm going to downplay the wrath of God. And so what happens is we take verses out of the Bible and we kind of pick and choose and we highlight some and we push others to the side. Good example. Probably the most famous, maybe the most famous verse in the Bible, or at least in this time in, in America today, John 3.16. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is true and wonderful and it is a great verse and say teach it to your children and it's a good one that we memorize and we talk about. In the very next verse, we love that too. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Yes and amen. That is absolutely true. God so loves his children that he's seeking them. He wants a relationship and he wants to bring them back. And he didn't come to condemn the world, but he came that we might be saved. But the question that needs to be in there and we need to take the full of the context is what the next verse says and what he came to save us from. Because John three eighteen says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Right? Even in John three sixteen to say that he came into the world to save us, that we should not perish, that that's a real possibility. 
Or you get to the end of John 3 as John summarizes all that's just been said in the chapter. And he says this in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In our rebellion, in our telling God we don't need you and we're good on our own, the wrath of God rests on us. And so that's where that language comes from. Yes, we are children of God. Yes, all people owe back to God everything. But in our rebellion, God's wrath rests on us. So we need to be saved. We need to be rescued. We need to be adopted back into God's family. And so with that, I want you to think and look with me for just a second in Galatians chapter three. Jim read it for us just a second ago. Five sixty six. In the solid Bibles, 672 in the blue and white one, if you want to turn there. But this is Paul writing to the church in Galatia. And they're struggling with this idea that they're saved completely by the grace of God. People had come in and told them, yes, it's Jesus. And yes, it's what Jesus has done for you. But you've also got to do some other things. You need to become Jewish and you need to be circumcised and you need to do all these points of the law and keep them. And Paul is writing to show them that's not the case. It's all Jesus. So I'm going to pick up in verse 23 of chapter three. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And so it says we're imprisoned under the law in the sense that God gives us the law and he shows us what he requires is a perfect, holy, righteous God to be in perfect relationship with him. But it imprisons us under it because we can't do it. It just makes us aware that we've not lived up to it. And so we're imprisoned under the law because it just alerts us to our sinfulness. Right? So then verse 24. So, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And so he says that when you come to faith in Jesus, you're called sons and daughters again because of what Christ has done. You couldn't do it yourself. You couldn't do it by keeping the law perfectly. So one had to come who could do it for you. And so pick up in chapter four and verse four. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his sons into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Do you hear what he's saying? He says, at the perfect time, at the fullness of time, Jesus came. And he came into history and he took on humanity and he lived under the law and he kept the law perfectly that you and I have not kept. He did what we couldn't do for us so that we could receive adoptions as sons. Right? We were God's children and we rebel and we say we don't need you. We become children of wrath. But Jesus comes to seek and save the lost. That's us. To bring us back, to offer us the full rights as sons to be adopted back in by what he does for us. So I want you to think about that image. The Bible doesn't just talk about us as children, but then it talks about us being adopted back in. 
because we've rebelled and because we've renounced all that we are, we've sought emancipation from God. We've got to be adopted back in. But I want you to think about why God inspires to use that image of adoption. I don't know what you know about adoption, but children that are waiting to be adopted don't go and then pick the ones that they want to adopt them and lead the process. Right? There's a lot of children waiting to be adopted that are sitting there just waiting and hoping that someone will come and adopt them. And if you know about adoption, like here in the state of Georgia, you have to go and you have to take some classes. If you want to adopt, you go uh, to your county and you take some classes and you go through uh, some checks. You have to take like 20 something hour of classes. They come to your house and they do uh, a home study and they interview you and your spouse. And if you have children, they interview your children and they check your home. They do all these things. And there's all these hoops and all these things that you have to jump through. And along the way, you have to pay a good bit of money to be able to do it. And all the while, the child that you're adopting is sitting there waiting. They don't know any of this that's going on. And you're doing all these things for this to happen. And then one day it comes and they get adopted by this family that's put in all this work and all this time to be able to call them their son or their daughter. And then you think about the image that it gives us of Jesus. Our older brother in Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus comes to seek and save the lost. His wayward brothers and sisters. Or if you add Galatians 4 with what it says in Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You start to see why God chooses the image of adoption. Jesus leaves his throne And all that is due to him is the creator and sustainer of all creation. And he comes in and he humbles himself and he lives under the law and he keeps it perfectly. And he's obedient in all these ways. And then he willingly allows his creation, his rebellious sons and daughters, crucify him. And he goes to the cross and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he lays down his life that we can be adopted back into the family. And you start to get the fullness of what God is doing in this. All people are made in God's image. But every single one of us is rebelled. And the only way that we come back is by what Jesus has done for us. Please hear this. Especially... If you grew up in a difficult home situation, maybe you had an absent father, or maybe worse, you had a father that you wish was absent. You had a difficult situation. And when we talk about God being perfect father and being part of his family, it's hard for you to get to that image as being something good because of what you've known and you've experienced in your life. But God is the perfect father and Jesus and what he's done for us is the proof of his great love for us. 
the lengths that he has gone to, despite our rebellion, to welcome us back into his family. That he willingly would come and leave his throne and lay down his life and pursue us, that we could be called his sons and daughters despite our rebellion. And that's what you see here when, when Paul talks about, and now he sent the Spirit in, the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba just means Dad. It's a very intimate uh, relationship there. And he's saying the spirit comes in and you are now part of the family and it's all because of what Jesus has done that you're adopted back in. And so when we start to think about what that looks like and we understand what that means. We start to wrestle with the fullness of that. It can radically change the way we engage and see and love people around us. And so look at Acts 2 for just a second. Acts 2, uh, if you're not familiar with Acts, Acts is the telling of the spread of the gospel. Right? It takes place and it starts right after the resurrection of Jesus and then his ascension. And then he sends them out to make disciples who make disciples over the face of the earth. And throughout Acts, we have these summary statements. As the gospel goes out and it crosses each threshold and it goes to different places and it gets further and further out, there's these summary statements in Acts. And in Acts 2, 42 to 47 is that first summary statement in Acts. And it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day. Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the early church. Remember, the church is people. You don't go to church. You are the church. Those that have been redeemed by Jesus, the Spirit is now indwelling. This is the early church, and this is what they begin to live like. As the Spirit comes in and cries, Abba, Father, as they're brought back into the fold, what does it look like? And it says they worship together every day, breaking of bread and prayers. Most likely the breaking of bread it's talking about there is taking communion together. And so they're worshiping and spending time together, seeking God and worshiping Him. But then it says all who believed had everything together in common and they were meeting one another's needs and they were spending time together. And those that were in trouble or needed something, they were selling stuff to meet those needs and caring for one another. And then they were going from house to house, sharing meals and spending time with glad and generous hearts. And you start to get this image of what it looks like the family of faith living as a family. Loving one another, knowing each other, spending time together, worshiping together, meeting each other's needs. And you have this wonderful community of what a healthy family looks like. And as God was making that real in their hearts and they're beginning to work in that way, you start to see exactly what Jesus said. You will know my disciples by the way they love each other. You know them as they live as a healthy family. As we start to see that God is our father and that is our identity now of who we are in Jesus, that we're brought back into his family. 
But there's an important distinction there as they live together that I want you to see that it's not just them together. But in verse 46, as they says they were day by day attending the temple together, breaking the bread in their homes. They received food with glad and generous hearts. They were praising God. And then it says having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And I want you to think about everything we've talked about. Is a universal truth that God is our father. Every single one of us, every person that you will come into contact with owes their being and who they are to the creator God of the universe. Every single one of them, every single person you will meet is made in God's image. And every single person you will meet at one point has, has rebelled against him. But in each and every person you will meet, there is a deep longing for connection and for family and for community. And it's God given because we are made in his image. God in and of himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit in the Trinity is perfect community together. And we are made in that image and we are made for that connection and that communion with God. And so every single person you meet, no one is exempt, is looking for that deeper connection. And when the church began to live that way, started to love one another as brothers and sisters, and they started to share all things and spend time together, what happened is it says they found favor with all the people. Do you know why? Because everyone is longing to have that connection with their father. Their perfect heavenly father, every single person you meet. And when you understand what the Bible says, what you begin to see is the people that you see around you. That have been deeply wounded from bad family situations in their life, that it's something far deeper than that, that they want the connection that comes only from their perfect father. Or you see people that are trying so hard to manufacture and make their family their children, their spouse, their family be absolutely perfect, then it's going to meet all their needs and it's just not working. It's because it can't, because they're longing for that relationship with their heavenly father. And as we begin to live that out as God's people and experience that together and invite people into that, there is something so profound that that's what you see happening here. And they were having favor with all the people and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Because we were made for this. We were made to be in this family as God is our father. And so when we talk about things like discipleship and growing in our relationship with the Lord and with one another and with the world and that kind of up in and out and how those go together. An integral part of that is us living together as a family and then inviting people into that to experience it. In doing so, we begin to show what God's love is like, however imperfect it is. But we start to live as a healthy family and inviting people into that. There's a deep longing in everyone that we meet that is longing for that. And we have an opportunity to do that just as they were doing here. And so let me just end here this morning with this, as we think about how do we begin to live that out? It's not easy. We have busy schedules and busy lives, a lot of things going on. And so we talk here about missional community groups, 
DNA groups going deeper and deeper with fewer and fewer sharing your life with those people around you and getting involved in those ways. And there's a deep longing and desire in us in the spirit of who we now are in Jesus to have that connection with our brothers and sisters. Realize that as we sit here and you look around the room, those that have come to faith in Jesus and are trusting him, the Bible says they are your brothers and sisters. And so if you you go, I don't I don't have a lot of family, I don't have a lot of immediate family right here in the area, I would say to you, look around the room. Yes, you do. And the Bible says it's even deeper than blood. That it's the spirit being formed in us and who we now are in Christ. And we get to live together as a family. And so when we talk all the time about getting involved with other people, getting involved in a missional community group. It's not some program or something, but it's a deep longing of our heart that God calls us into, that we get to now live this way to show people what God is like. And so I'd encourage you to take that step if you don't know how that works or it's. I know some people, the idea of, of reading a list and looking at where groups meet and doing that thing and taking that step is terrifying. And that's OK. We're all different in our personalities and the way we operate and God's gifted us differently. Would you come see Luke or I? And ask, hey, where can I get involved and what would that look like? And we would love nothing more than to help get you plugged in that we can live that way as a healthy family, living out the identity of what God has called us to be. And in doing so, we then get to invite people into that. And hopefully our, our prayer is what would happen is exactly what it says happened here in Acts two forty seven. Praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And, and we would be right to say adding to our family. And we come to know deeper, more and more brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that we would see that. And so that's what we talk about when we talk about a family of faith. And so let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the glorious truth that you are our father. And that you love us so dearly that you pursue us. Even in our rebellion, even when we've thrown you off and said we don't need you and you continue to pursue us. I thank you that you love us so dearly that you care for us so much that you've come and done what we could never do for ourselves and that you freely open your arms to us to come back in, to be adopted in as your sons and daughters. And so we thank you. I pray for each one here that has, that has made that step, that we would live out of that identity, that we would truly love one another the way you've loved us, that we'd invite people into that. I pray for those that may be here this morning that struggle with ide- that idea, they're struggling with what it means to be your beloved son or daughter. I pray that you would reveal to them how fully you love them. I pray that they would know the great love that comes from you and what you've done for us. That we would rest in that and who we are in Jesus. We thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.